Thank you for tuning in. My name is Brittany, and I'm really excited that you're here to check out this new message with our current series, Redemption. Morning. It's a little bit dreary out there. So let's try that again. Morning. Morning. Whew. All right. Let's go. If you got a Bible, you can open it up. We're going to start in Luke chapter 4. We're going to look at quite a a few different texts this morning. As we continue on with our series entitled Redemption, where we've been studying God's redemptive story throughout history, all of human history, dating back to in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth and everything was perfect and then sin broke in. But God's response to sin was to promise a redeemer in Genesis chapter 3. That redeemer then came through the seed of Abraham. That uh, seed turned into a nation. The Israelites, they were enslaved. God delivered the children of Israel miraculously under the leadership of Moses. That leadership was passed on to Joshua when they inhabited the promised land that they were given. But the people of Israel, like us today, had two major problems, divided hearts and a failure to completely annihilate lingering sin. Then the nation was led by judges, then kings, of which one of them was David, kind of important. Then they were enslaved for a couple hundred years, finally returned. During all of that time, there were prophecies written about the coming Messiah and true redemption. The last of those made by a prophet by the name of Malachi, who said the Messiah would come and he would redeem and he would also judge. And then everything went blank. 400 years. We finished our time last week by reading the first part of what we know as the New Testament, the chronology, uh, dating back from the beginning all the way to the birth of Jesus. Today, in order to continue our series, uh, and this is our second to last week. We'll conclude next week on Easter Sunday. And by the way, normal service times, 9 and 10.30, next Sunday for Easter. Uh, we'll start our Easter celebration week by talking about Christmas. So uh, let's, we're just going to cover the whole thing in, in, in seven days. Uh, I want to talk this morning about Jesus's style of entry. Jesus' style of entry. I I watched, um, as I'm sure many of you did, a lot of WWF growing up, okay? If you don't know what that is, it's now called WWE. It's fake wrestling. If you didn't know it was fake, sorry, okay? Um, This is church. We tell the truth. And so um, one of the best things about fake wrestling, though, was their entries uh, that they would make. And uh, if you watch that at all, like if you hear Hulk Hogan's music, like you expect to see him come out next, right? And uh, that was one of the most fun parts about it. Well, Jesus made a couple of different entries um, that were exceptionally significant. Um, His most famous entry would be probably his triumphal entry. It's actually given that label, um, which kicks off Holy Week, or uh, what we know today is Palm Sunday, the week leading up to Easter. Well, we're going to look at four entries that Jesus made. Three of them have already happened. One of them is still to come. So let's look at his first one. This one we know as Christmas. In that entry, Jesus humbly uh, broke into the world as a human, both fully God and fully man. When he did so, he was born in a place called Bethlehem. Why? Well, the scripture tells us in order to fulfill messianic prophecy. 
And so as Jesus enters, when he makes his entry, the first thing that happens is he fulfills a messianic prophecy. That's what happened in his birth. And it was said then his name shall be called Emmanuel because he will save his people from their sins. So it's who he is, a savior, and what he's going to do, save people from their sins. What happens next? There's some people that worship him. And so right around on his birthday, Christmas, right, people came and they worshiped him. But what also happened? There were those who wanted to kill him. And so there was a guy, Herod, who had a misunderstanding of the type of king that Jesus would be. And so his response to Jesus right from the beginning, uh, after Jesus made his entry, was to try and kill him. Now, Jesus' life was preserved through a, a dream to his father, his earthly father, Joseph. And so they went and hid um, a lot of other little boys in that time were, were murdered, um, but Jesus was preserved. And so you see this beginning of a pattern. Fulfillment of messianic prophecy, the proclamation of this baby Jesus as king, why he was there to save people from their sins. Some worshiped, some wanted to kill him. Now let's fast forward 30 years. Fast forward 30 years, we find ourselves um, in Luke chapter four. Luke chapter four. This is a second entry that Jesus makes. This one is his entry into the public realm of ministry. Now, this is kind of like Jesus' stump speech, okay? He's going to get out, and he's going to tell people who he is and why he's there. We find this in Luke 4, starting in verse 16. Now, let me give you the setting. He is now in a different town called Nazareth. It's kind of like a, you know, an insignificant town, okay? Like, you know, mommy or something, right? Just kidding. We love you, mommy people. Okay, so it's an insignificant town. It's called Nazareth, and he's there, and Jesus grew up there. He's been there for 30 years or so. He would have gone to synagogue on a regular basis, and everyone who would have been in synagogue with Jesus in Nazareth would have known who he was. That's Jesus, right? Oh, yeah, Jesus. That, or that's Jesus, you know, Joseph's son. That's Jesus, Bob's son. That's, you know, kind of a common name, right? And so you have Jesus showing up on synagogue day like he had done probably for 30-something years with a bunch of people that knew him and had seen him grow up. So synagogue would have been, you know, they would have sang some songs. They would have read some scripture. Somebody would have prayed, right? Somewhat similar to what we do on Sunday mornings, Jesus rolls in, synagogue is going up. It comes to the time where somebody can stand up from the crowd. Jesus walks up. They give him the scroll of Isaiah. We're in 700 years prior. Jesus grabs it. He scrolls, okay, to uh, the part that he wanted to read. And uh, it's Isaiah, what we would know today is Isaiah 61.1, a very famous messianic prophecy. It'd be like today starting like, we the people of the United, right? You know it. It's the, that's the preamble if you didn't know that. Okay, it's the Constitution. The people would have known what he was saying. They also would have known the next verse, which he leaves out. But he gets up and he gives the first part of the Messianic prophecy, Isaiah 61.1, and he lays it out in front of them. And he actually reads it to them. I'll read it to you. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Remember, this is written 700 years prior to this moment. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and receiving of sight to the blind to proclaim, or, or the word proclaim is to preach, to preach those things, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so Jesus lays out this famous messianic prophecy. 
And in that, he, um, he, he says, really, he's there to do four things, but three of the things are the same. It's to proclaim or to preach something, to preach good news, to preach liberty, to preach God's favor. He said, uh, this messianic, uh, the person who's going to fulfill this messianic prophecy, this is what they're ultimately going to do. They're going to proclaim these things. And then they're also the other one, the fourth one was to set it free, the, or to, to, to set to liberty the, the captives. Now, over the next three years, Jesus is going to proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. He's going to do all of those things. You know the one thing he's not going to do? He's not going to literally set a captive free. In fact, one of his closest friends and supporters goes to prison. And while he's in prison, he asks Jesus, uh, hey, are you the one that we're waiting for? In other words, um, if that set the captive free thing is literal, I could use it. That guy's name is John the Baptist. He ends up dying in jail. So Jesus is either really bad at being Messiah or we're supposed to read this differently than just a literal interpretation of physical poverty, physical enslavement. We're supposed to see it different. In other words, we're not supposed to just see this as like a social gospel, like there's something deeper going on here. Now, Jesus gets done reading. And then in front of everyone at church, right? And this would be like if one of you came up today, okay? And you're like, hey, hold on a second. I just need to read something. And you grab the Bible and you read it and you flip over to the part that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, and you read that verse in front of all of us this morning. And then you close your Bible and you would say, and that was talking about me. Now, hopefully, by the way, if anyone ever does that in church, don't agree with them. Okay, that's wrong. Okay, and Jesus gets up and he reads this passage and then he says this today, as in 700 or so years from that time it was written, 4,000 years from the promise in Genesis, a couple of thousand years from the seed of Abraham and the seed of David, and 430 years since everything went silent after Malachi today, this day, in front of you all in insignificant Nazareth, today that passage is fulfilled. What's he saying? He's making an entry into public ministry and he's doing it under messianic prophecy, just like he did when he made his entry into the world. He's making a claim of kingship and authority that he is Messiah. And when Jesus claims to be Messiah, he's not saying he is one of the Messiahs or he's a, a prophet like other prophets or, or he is a king amongst other kings. No, when Jesus makes messianic claim. When he says that he is king, what he is saying is, I am the only one. I am the only one who can be worshiped as king. In other words, modern reader, you can't read through the New Testament and arrive at a conclusion that Jesus is a path to God. He is the path, the only one. There is none other. And so Jesus gets up in front of this little group in, in Nazareth. And he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And look what they do. Like at Christmas, when the shepherds and the wise men were happy, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They liked him. Then he kept talking. <laughs> Lesson, right? Sometimes if they like you, just stop talking. Okay, so Jesus keeps talking. 
And he says, let me give you an example, an example of the type of redemption uh, that the Messiah, me, uh, will come to do. And he tells a story of the type of people he's going to reach, which gives us a hint that what he had read earlier, he was not talking about just economic poor or, or actual enslaved, because the example he gives is this. He gives two examples of the type of person that his redemption is going to reach. Here's the first, a poor Jewish woman, widowed. That's example one. So on one side, he said, let me tell you the type of redemption. Poor, Jewish, widowed woman. That's one. Okay? They probably still liked him at that point. Then he says, let me tell you another example of the type of redemption I'm going to bring. And he brings up a wealthy, powerful, pagan man. Could not be further on the spectrum. In other words, what he's saying is the type of redemption that I'm going to bring is going to go from the weak, powerless woman who's a Jew all the way to the powerful, rich, non-Gentile or non-Jew man and everything in between. My redemption is for everyone. Then what do they try and do? (laughs) It says they try to throw him off a cliff, which is another way of saying they tried to stone him. All of a sudden, now, they don't like him. Why? Oh, because they have just taken, he's just taken this, this, this redemption that they saw, that this poor, oppressed nation saw, and he's turned it into something that they didn't want. This is wrong redemption, Jesus. We're not looking after that. What we're looking for is for the, the, the poor or the oppressed or us as captives to be set free. And what you're talking about is something different. Now they want to kill him. Why? Because now he's not a king under their control. Now he's not a king that just exists to do what they want. Now he's a king who's going to threaten. Threaten what? Their national pride. Threaten what? Uh, uh, Inclusion of those they don't like. Now they can't control this king. So they want to murder the king. Just like that. They went from worship to murder. It says literally they tried to throw him off a cliff. This line is one of the funniest lines in scripture. But passing through their midst, he went away. In other words, they're all like, get him, get him. Where'd he go? Do you have him? Where'd he go? And they're looking around and like, no one can find Jesus. He slipped on Frodo's ring, gone, okay? So Frodo Jesus is running off to, he goes off to Capernaum. He sets up headquarters there. And his ministry begins. Three years later, Jesus is going to make another entry. This one we know as the triumphal entry. Kicks off Holy Week. In our Bibles, it's in Matthew 21. By the way, side note. Um, This week, you only get this week once a year. I would encourage you, take some time and read through the accounts of Holy Week. One of the things that will surprise you is how much of your Gospels, the four Gospels, are committed to this one week of Jesus' life. Matthew has 28 chapters in it. The triumphal entry of the last week of Jesus starts at chapter 21. In other words, 25% 
of the story is just this one week that's written. So take some time this week. Work your way through this scripture. We'll, we'll get it kick-started for you. Here's Jesus's third entry. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they as he and his disciples, and they came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If you're curious about that, I preached on it, I think two weeks or two years ago from today. So you can go back and watch it. Um, let me give you a quick clue. You're the donkey. Okay. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Recap. Jesus looks at his two disciples and says, run out ahead, go find these people, get the donkey, get the colt, and then come back. If they say why, say Jesus needs them, and they'll do it. They run into town, and they do it. Now, why is he doing this? Well, the scripture tells us. Remember, Jesus is making an entry. What does Jesus do when he makes an entry? First thing Jesus does when he makes an entry. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. What's the first thing he does? Fulfills messianic prophecy. So here's his third entry. This particular one is Zechariah 9.9. By the way, everyone who knew this would also know Zechariah 9.10, just like they would have known Isaiah 61.2. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so here's Jesus's third entry. Humbly, he's going to ride into Jerusalem. The daughters of Zion there in that line is just a reference to the city of Jerusalem, the Jewish people. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Now look how the people respond, similar to the first story, two stories. They brought the donkey and the colt and they put him on their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd then spread their cloaks on the road. They take off their cloaks, they put them on the ground. It was a symbol or a sign of revering him as a king. So Jesus has just fulfilled messianic prophecy uh, by, by him doing that. And by the way, he's intentionally doing this. He is saying again, and he's making claim and authority of his messiahship. He's claiming to be the king. And now the people are going to respond. They're going to literally now worship him. They're going to put their cloak down. And then what they're going to do is they're going to cut branches off and they're going to wave these palm branches, a, a sign of Jewish nationalism, a sign of Jewish power. What's the one thing that Jesus said he was going to do that he hasn't done yet in his ministry? He has not literally set the captives free. He's done everything else he said he was going to do. He's preached and he's proclaimed, but he hasn't done this yet. No one's been set free from prison yet. And so now in comes Jesus of Nazareth and they're going to start talking. They're like, who is this guy? And they're like, remember, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He's from that insignificant town. Remember that one time he got up in front of people and he said this thing and all of that. And he hasn't done one thing. He hasn't set the captives free. And so now here is Israel. By the way, here's the setting. It's the busiest time of the year because it's Passover week. And so people have flocked to Israel or to Jerusalem. It is the mall on Christmas Eve, right? It's crazy. Everyone's there. And here Jesus rolls in. And they begin to worship him as king. And they begin to think redemption is near. But what kind of redemption? Setting the captives free. In other words, throwing off Rome. Throwing off Rome. How did this whole start? Herod had a misunderstanding of Jesus's kingdom. So he murdered babies. 
when his ministry started, the people that he proclaimed to had a misunderstanding of his redemption. So they tried to kill him and throw him off a cliff. Now, He's entering into uh, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and there's, a, uh, uh, there's a, uh, an undercurrent that the redemption that is coming here is a redemption, uh, a physical redemption, and throwing off the Roman Empire and the establishment of an earthly kingdom, a wrong redemption. And Jesus is just following the path he always follows, messianic prophecy, claiming he's Messiah, people worship, then what happens Next line. This is either um, that night or, so Sunday night or it's Monday morning. Um, There's a little bit of question on exactly when this happens. It says then, and Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus goes in, uh, and after this entry, a little bit of wrath comes out of Jesus. Holy, righteous, good wrath. And he flips over some tables, and he, uh, in essence, is saying, uh, my kingdom uh, will not be about you obtaining money and power. And where you see religion leveraged and utilized to obtain money and power, it isn't my gospel. It's not my gospel. So he goes in and he flips over the tables. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. Now, this is the same Messiah who for three years has been healing people and doing what? Saying, don't go tell anybody. Don't go tell anybody. Don't go tell anybody. Don't go tell anybody. Now he's standing right in the middle of the temple on the busiest week of the year in Jerusalem. And people are coming to him and he's healing them like crazy. Where is this going to lead? Well, where is it always led when Jesus makes an entry? (laughs) First, they love him. Then what do they want to do? Then they want to kill him. Next thing that happens. It says, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus says to them, nigh, (laughs) which means yes. Text indicates there's a pause. They say, they're worshiping you as king. Do you realize that? And he says, yes. And then he says, basically, let them sing. Let them sing to me as king. And what will this trigger? Well, then, from then on, the religious leaders gather to do what? just like they wanted to do in Nazareth, just like they wanted to do in Bethlehem, to kill him. And this time, he won't disappear from their midst. This time, a dream won't get him to leave and go to Egypt where he's safe. No, this time, Jesus will stay in Jerusalem in the heart in the middle of danger. And he will go on over the next four days. And you would be shocked, I think, to to see all of the things that Jesus taught and preached in these four days. His woes to the Pharisees. The parable of the ten virgins. The parable of the talents. The parable of the two sons. 
paying taxes to Caesar, the parable of the wedding feast, the great commandments, his lament over Jerusalem, his high priestly prayer, all of this, the establishment of communion, all of this happens in these four days. In other words, Jesus gets up and this time he doesn't say that he's there to proclaim and to preach. He just starts preaching. And so for four days, Jesus proclaims and he preaches and he proclaims and he preaches and he tells them and he warns them and he makes it obvious who he is. But it's like in those four days, Jesus is saying, this is what I've come to do, to proclaim and to preach my gospel of who I am. And you know what the result of it is? His death. So this Friday, right, we'll remember his death. And this is what it'll all lead to. And then there's one thing, though, that Jesus never does. He never sets the captive free, literally. Why? Because like Herod like the group in Nazareth and like the group that had gathered here and like many today, like many today, we were looking for the wrong redemption. We were cherishing the wrong redemption. In other words, what does this teach us? That ultimately, I'm saying ultimately, Highest priority, Jesus' highest priority wasn't to bring economic fairness, social justice, healing, or favor. Let me say it another way. Jesus didn't come ultimately to make us rich, healthy, free, or blessed. Now, don't get me wrong. Those things can happen. Jesus can bless a business. He can heal the sick. He released Peter from prison. He can bless countless Christians. But let me tell you what else is true. Jesus' disciples died poor and terribly. Christians around the world remain in poverty, slavery, and in fear of torture and death, and they're far from what we would call blessed. We cannot throw an Americanized version of Christianity over the doctrine of redemption. In the Middle East, Christians die in prison. For every one story of miracle, there are a dozen more of martyr. For every story of healing, someone of equal faith dies of cancer or by tragedy. Ultimately, Jesus' greatest gift to us is not some type of worldly blessing. It is forgiveness of our sins. What Jesus most came to do was to save sinners of which you and I are the worst. What Jesus most came to do was to pay the penalty of sin, the only way it could be paid, the shedding of his innocent blood on the cross. This is true and real redemption. Your sins paid for by Jesus. If he did nothing else ever for any one of us, we are still recipients of amazing, incredible grace and undeserved blessing. 
Jesus' ultimate aim was to preach a forgiveness of sin. Now, why is this important? Why must we share it? Because he's making another entry. There is one more entry that Christ will make. Between this entry and his death, he told a story. It was a story about a wedding. And the point of the story was to be ready for the next entry. Notice the timing when Jesus tells the story. What Jesus was telling in that story was the season of being ready for his next entry was beginning. In other words, you and I right now live in what is a relatively short season. It's been 2,030 years, but within the context of eternity, it's a relatively short season. And what the short season that you and I live in right now is a season of deciding if we're going to run after God for right redemption or wrong redemption. In other words, are we going to pursue after God because in it comes blessing, healing, or riches? If we go after God to receive any of those things, those things are our God, not him. We go to God for one thing only, forgiveness of sin. Now, if he chooses to bless He can do that. He's loving, he's kind, he's gracious. But that's not why we go to him. And why is this important? Again, because he's making another return. I'll let the scripture tell you about the next return. It's found in Revelation chapter 19. This is the entry that Jesus will make again one day. Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and it is not his blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus will make one more entry, this time not on a donkey, but a horse. Not for peace, but for war. Not to die, but to conquer. The turning of the tables was just a snapshot of the wrath that would come when he makes his next entry. 
And you and I and all of humanity live in the short season of Jesus riding in on the donkey. We live in the short season of time where we have a choice of which side we are going to be on. The side that murders Jesus or the side that worships him as king. There are only two options. Every time he makes an entry, one side worships him as king and the other side wants to kill him. There is no middle ground. There is not, I like him, but I worship this and that as well. There is murder Jesus. There is worship him as king. And you and I are fortunate enough to live in this season where we get to choose what side we will be on. But like the story he said right before he died, we don't know when that day is coming. So bow bended knee to him. Don't wait. Don't worship yourself. Don't look at wrong redemption. Worship him as king. Because if those other three entries told us anything, it's that Jesus always fulfills prophecy. He did it in all three entries and he will do it again. This day will come. And I hope you will be on the right side. How? How? By grace, through faith in Jesus, it is the only way. And if this series has taught us anything, it's that we are redeemed and saved by grace and that God's plan of salvation all along was only grace. So embrace it and accept it and worship him as king. Let's pray. Thank you so much for checking out this message. If you'd like to know more on our church, you can go to experienceredemption.com.